Man is an artifact designed for space travel. He is not designed to remain in his present biological state anymore than a tadpole is designed to remain a tadpole. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Wow. Who do you think that was? Wow, I don't know. That sounds absolutely brilliant. Well, it was. It was the great William Burroughs. Oh, wow. Amazing author. And what, do you know, have you got any background to that quote? No, I just wanted to pick one out. Slap it round your face. Do you know what? I, I actually really agree with the sentiments of that quote. I, I, I mm. find it, uh, the more and more I think about humans going to, into space and how goddamn hard it is, the more I think about, the more I think about how, yeah, that's that, that that's probably going to be the the reality of it. We won't go out into the stars like we as humans, will we? No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, oh, this is it, Matt. I mean, do you know, someone sent me a quote to spin my mind. It was a quote, uh, something along the lines of, uh, "In three thousand years' time, a giant squid looks up at the stars." Uh, and sees our remains blinking back at us, <laughs> something like that. And it took me a while. I was like, I was just couldn't stop thinking about it. Mm, that's interesting. That, that we that, that if when there's no humans left, if there's no humans left, will there be some animals left, and how will they evolve? So that giant squid is look is seeing a satellite. Is it blinking over? No, it's just no, it's just seeing like the remains of us, like as starlight. No. Oh. But also, Matt, we could talk about the great Richard Dawkins uh, quote about uh, rat, rat kind. Have you heard that? No, one? no, no, no. Uh, that, that he said when you know when man uh, is wiped out, that he thinks that islands will become islands again, and uh, and rats are going to evolve into sort of uh, super rats. Oh yeah, no, I do. Like I do. proper surviving Yeah, rodents. no, I do remember this. Brilliant. I remember there was, there, was a, there was a book ages ago that came out about what animals might look like in a million years' time. It was very silly. It's brilliant, isn't Where? it? He said, he said, he said, would, would, he said, I wonder if uh, we will get rat historians looking, looking back at, at, at the human's demise. Oh, that, that, has, there was a NASA paper quite recently. Uh, and I, I, I was, I was going to try and cover it on the podcast, but it was about how mm. would we know, uh, if there had been a civilization before us, as in, is it feasible that there was human civilizations as complicated as ours is today, but that had happened in the past? But wouldn't we find fossils? Well, you you might find fossils of of like human remains, perhaps, but you may not find any sort of artifacts of the technology because it would have long vanished, like buildings and things like that. I actually don't know what the outcome of this study was, but so I'm 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 going to look it up and maybe we can cover it next week. Can we do a whole podcast, please, on on this subject? Yes, because okay. I could talk for hours about this stuff. Let's do it. So. Jamie, yes. what, one of the reasons we, we are we, we are a bit uh, note free, aren't we this week? And uh, we're a bit we're a bit free, we're a bit free, as you might and, gather. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the reasons is um, we've both been very busy with work. But I've actually, do you know what? I've been to the uh, the Interplanetary Society, the British Interplanetary Society, three times this week since I last saw you. 
It's pretty hardcore. It's pretty hardcore. I'm going to tell you about those. I'd love to hear it. And you have great interview coming up. Yeah, well, I've got a couple of interviews. So today I'm going to play the interview. First talk that I went to was uh, investor funded access to space from the UK, question mark. Nice. So, yeah, so this is the result of a BIS study into Nanosat launch vehicle feasibility from the UK. Whoa. And how was it? So it was very, very interesting. It was, In fact, it was really interesting. I, I learned quite a lot of things. I met quite a few people who were pals with Elon Musk and stuff like that, so that was quite funny. True. <laughs> uh, there was, yeah, there was, there was quite a few, you know, old-school uh, British space legends at that talk, like there always is at the British Interplanetary Society. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that, that was very, very interesting. And uh, do you know what the, the answer is to uh, investor-funded access to space from the UK, question mark? Go on, then. It is yes. It oh, does brilliant. seem that it's feasible to launch from the UK by means of a sun-synchronous orbit or polar orbit from Scotland. So they... They seem to sort of concentrate on on Scotland. Uh, they they mention the Cornwall one, but you can only really fly out southwest from Cornwall to a sun synchronous orbit. Right, I, and right. I don't really know why that's a problem, because there were certainly problems with the Scottish launch, because wherever you launch from, you had to kind of do a, a dog leg manoeuvre. So a dog leg manoeuvre, obviously, instead of going like straight, you kind of got to do a little bit of a bend so that you avoid. Sounds like one of, sounds like one of your manoeuvres, Matt, on a Friday <laughs> evening. Well, it's when, when I'm marking my territory in a nightclub. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, you've got to avoid the Faroe Islands. And there was also a kind of trying to avoid uh, hitting Greenland, of course, hmm. and also uh, avoid... Well, the funny thing was, one of the launch sites in Scotland, the Moyne, when you t- take off from there, you had to kind of fly, do a dogleg manoeuvre, but that would fly you over oil fields, which oh. which I would have thought would have completely ruled it out. I would imagine like the insurance bill. Yeah, that would be a going, hell of oh, an yeah, explosion. I've got this uh, rocket and it's going to be flying over like this unbelievably important uh, industrial <laughs> centre. Yeah. So, yeah, probably, no, we're not going to insure you for that. Hmm. Now, so so yeah, the, it's quite it's quite interesting how they did this this whole study. So I'll play the I'll play the interview that I did earlier on. But there's there, there was a few things that I picked up. So they didn't really look at payloads much below a hundred kilograms, uh, and no, nothing really but a hundred and fifty kilograms. So that puts right. it in a market called the nanosat and microsat market. So and well, it's it, the only market to go to, isn't it? Yeah, so the nanosat is is things like your typical cubesat, and your microsat uh-huh. is like something between ten and a hundred kilograms, like Sputnik, or Britain's only satellite, Prospero. Uh, ah. yeah. So, uh, but yeah, nano satellites are things like your cubesats and uh, the SSTL. Sorry, satellites, CubeSat, and things like that. So uh, uh, that's the sort of thing they were looking at, and obviously launching multiple uh, CubeSats and uh, and NanoSats okay. uh, in in one launch. So to weighing between one hundred and one hundred and fifty kilograms. Now, now they realised that it wasn't feasible to launch anything less than that. It started to become st- stupid and uh, not very uh, realistic. And then right. after a hundred. 150 kilograms it sort of became a completely different kettle of fish 
Okay. So it seemed like the, the sort of real crux was how big is the nano satellite market? You know, how, how what, you know, what could be sustained? Right. And, and, um, and what was the main synopsis? So they use this thing, they, they use this technique called agent based um, analysis, which is a bit like a computer game. So when you play a, com- a computer game, all the sort of characters are kind of agent based, um, like something like Grand Theft theft auto you've got all these agent-based characters that have have their own agency i suppose and uh, so every time you play the game it is is of course slightly different because you've got all these different things so this agent-based management technique looked at the nanosat market cubesat market and played lots and lots of different scenarios and and chose you know ones that were appearing more if often Uh i suppose on some form of some form of histogram of some uh description they estimated that the growth would somewhere be between eight percent and 22 percent per annum you know i love a stat oh yeah so eight percent would be pretty low Mm. which means that even with like about six or seven launches uh, a year you would be taking up like 50 percent of the launch market which would be quite you know a risky thing to go right i'm, I'm going into this launch market and i'm going to be grabbing 50 percent of the global launch market so it was like yeah that's probably not going to happen so uh, they were quite critical actually on several occasions of new zealand's rocket lab right okay uh, or america's I, sh- I should actually say america's rocket lab that launches from new zealand the electron rocket because their sort of business model says that it's going to be flying once a mm. week which means like 52 cubesat launches a year where that would be like that would be assuming that there was, you know, an absolutely enormous market for these things and that they had an enormous share of that mm. market. So they were saying, no, that, it, it, that might be their outward-facing business model, but they doubted very much whether that was, like, internally what they were really reckoning on because it just seemed too ridiculous. Got it. So, so yeah, it would have kind of mixed, uh, mixed launches. Now, one of the things that that sort of came up was, well, you've got this rocket that's launching these small satellites. Well, why not just like get a lift on bigger rocket launches? So, say when Falcon Nine puts up a large communication satellite, it can obviously put up a few nano satellites at the same sure. time. In fact, in fact, we've just seen that with the launch uh, the other day of uh, Antares. So an Antares uh, uh, launched on the 21st of May with a Cygnus spacecraft. Uh-huh. And there was there was a whole he- heap of CubeSats on that. So, of course, that makes it very, very cheap for those little CubeSats to basically get the bus ride, they called it. So you, you sort of, like, have a lift on the bus. Absolutely. But is there a, a sort of better market for the having a taxi lift essentially where it's like you can go when you want to go you're not at the beck and call of lots of other satellites because mm. it can be quite annoying if for example that antares launch had been delayed because that cygnus um cargo vehicle had been delayed and then all, of course all those cubesats are at the very mercy of this one satellite launch yeah, so it's clearly better in some instances to have this taxi ride. So there was an element of that that has to be sort of played out, whether whether it's even worth building this vehicle at all. So one of the interesting things I thought was really interesting is that they built a reference vehicle in a computer simulation. Really? So they went through, yeah, so they went through the whole rigmarole. Because basically one thing that they were saying is there's, there's no point really launching from the UK unless we have our kind of own native rocket mm, to do so true. 
uh, and of course, that also means that you have uh, minist- Ministry of Defence contracts, which could be really, really important. And of course, you might get a bit more government funding, etc., etc., etc. So that was a few questions that came up. So they built this rocket to, uh, and the one preferred option was a three-stage pump-fed rocket. That seemed to be the one that sort of came up trumps in all their kind of statistical studies. Uh, and they did this by by uh, counting up the amount of parts it would take to develop this rocket. And the kind of lowest score would be the cheapest to develop, and the highest score would be the most expensive. Uh-huh. And, that, and then they would look at something like the Falcon 1. I think, I think they did actually look at the Falcon 1, SpaceX's uh, development of the Falcon 1, how many parts that has in their model, and worked out how much that cost to develop and then sort of extrapolate that kind of costing into their rocket which seems to have quite a few <laughs> quite a few assumptions but i yeah, guess that's it, that's how they were it does working out the cost of their rocket it does yeah that's quite interesting it's nice to i, I wonder what elon would think of that they just take it everyone's like looking at that model well not everyone but i mean yeah. it just goes to show what a force spacex what a force. is yeah i mean well yeah i suppose it's one of the, the most recent most recently developed uh, rockets of that kind mm. um uh but yeah so that that was interesting and i think it was it came to something like 30 million 30 million pounds to develop this thing that piece would be the sort of uh, development costs yeah piece of cake but there was a lot of discussion in the room about oh can't you have it as pressure fed rather than pump fed it seemed to be like a real big deal mm. but i'm just simply not enough into rocket engines and and uh, building you know new space vehicles to know really know why that was well, I'll, I'll wait till the podcast is finished and then i'll call you up because it's going to take a long time for me to explain it to you okay okay they also looked into air launch mm. uh but they they kind of semi abandoned that idea because of the extra 10 million it would cost to develop the plane and and the, uh, to actually do the air launch yes. so they weren't they weren't so keen on that thing so they actually developed this vehicle and i think the the program the program they developed it in was called astos astroview software which is what they used to develop spacecraft mm. and so they and so there's so there was a very w- rough wire diagram of what this uh, idealized reference vehicle would look like Beautiful. Can we see that diagram? The report is, is is available. Well, we'd like it if you shared the chewing gum with the whole class back. <laughs> I think I speak on behalf of my listeners. <laughs> um, the, the crux of the matter was that if if there was this high demand for nanosatellites based on their model, mm. you would have a very robust business case for £40,000 per kilogram uh launch now they base this on irr do you mean roi irr internal rate of return irr was the was the number that they were basing it on and they if it was 10 percent, so these are all it were 10 percent, which means that you get 10 percent back on your initial in, uh, investment you get 10% back every single year as long as the program runs for 10 years, which was also a bit contentious for saying, oh, what if the, you know, this launch market might not last 10 years and things are moving so fast that even that would be risky. Uh, and then in the room, a lot of people are saying, no, £40,000, which, by the way, for our uh, uh, foreign listeners, which is most of you, is $57,000 per kilogram. Mm. So if you drop it down to thirty. 
£1,000 per kilogram or $43,000 per kilogram, uh, then at a high um, uh, growth, the, the business model is still robust. However, if it's only intermittent or low, then you have a weak business case. Mm. So... Every, most people in the room were of the opinion you need to get it down to this to this thirty thousand quid per kilogram kind of launch, or, or, or why would anyone bother coming to Britain to do these launches that have to miss the Faroe Islands by a dog leg, and then you've got the chance of your second stage hitting Greenland, and then you've got the chance of another stage hitting Russia, apparently. Oh. <laughs> so when this stage comes down, uh, the computer model shows it just coming down just shy of Matt, Russia. Which if would... there's one place that we don't want to upset with a, a falling rocket part, it's Russia. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't think of anything. I'd rather it fell in, in Korea, North Korea. Mm. Actually, no, I wouldn't, because we've got one listener from North Korea. So I take that back. Well, we, we've got several in Russia, so we we, we, we definitely don't oh, want to hurt yeah, them. Yeah, that's true. I take it all back. Just don't drop anything. <laughs> so that yeah, that was interesting. It's it's really interesting actually. I'd, I'd never really seen all these dogleg manoeuvres that all these flights had to do. Like the Indian ones have to do this crazy dogleg manoeuvre to get out uh, on their two different vehicles. One of the one of the uh, vehicles goes re- does a massively long dog leg to to avoid going over any kind of inhabited areas mm. so like yeah the, the insurance companies work on what was the expected casualty rate right, <laughs> the ec right. so there's an ec level and i th- i actually think yeah that it ro- i think it would ro- rule out the mine for a launch facility just because of this oil field because apparently when back back in the day with the black arrow um they uh they decided not to launch black arrow which was only an orbital ro- a suborbital rocket you know a, a a a sounding rocket they didn't want to launch that from norfolk because of course of the danger of hitting oil fields of out out course. there which were nowhere near as economically as important as the ones off the God, north coast of scotland so let me ask you matt is that the same mm-hmm. or, does insurance work in the same way with commercial aircraft so with planes flying over land, uh, busy land and cities, uh, is that more insurance than if you're flying over the ocean? Uh, I would imagine so. Would yeah, I would so. imagine. Well, I can't. Yeah, I would have thought so. So, I mean, planes when they come into Heathrow, Heathrow's just about the worst place you could have built an airport near London. Because because of the way that the winds winds come in, they all have to fly over London to go to into into Heathrow, and they kind of follow the path of the Thames. Oh. So that if they do come down, they 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 can actually ditch in the Thames as a worst case scenario. L- luckily, we haven't had anything like that, have we? Matt, what's the most terrifying so, and, and, airport you've ever flown into? Ooh, ooh, that ooh! I, I had a scary one in. Uh, flying into la paz which is is the capital city of where matt for 10 points la paz peru oh you're so close matt it's bolivia ah! you're so close in fact what's the, is, is lima the capital of correct peru? yeah oh, damn I yeah you that. were very i shouldn't have said you, you were peru. about you're about four or five hours away now the interesting thing about flying into one of those cities is it's you're you're likely to die from the change of pressure oh, when you take off from london the the air pressure's low. I, I might be corrected yeah. on this, which won't be the first time. But I think La Paz is the highest city in the world. That might be false, but hey, <laughs> I'm throwing it out there as true. So uh, 
Let oh, me know if there's a higher what, what, one. But man, it ooh. was like in some... The city is like in a big bowl where it's just spread out around this huge... These mountains that come down into like a two square mile of flatness. And it's really scary flight coming in. <laughs> <laughs> it's, isn't Hong Kong supposed to be a nasty one? Yeah, that's not great. Uh, well, that's where I had my lightning hit my plane experience oh, that wasn't God. good either <laughs> you um, said you it's all right guns. guys i'm still here yeah I'm still here. jamie's still here i'm still standing yeah so, yes, yeah there yeah. we go do you want to hear the results of our uh, asking asking our podcats if they could uh, work out why um what was i going to say work out yes how much energy how much how much power i should say uh is the falcon 9 uses on its first First stage burn. <laughs> that took you a while, Matt. I, I was with you all the way. Um, I'd love to know. The thing is, while I was doing that, I was I was trying to find the the, the emails because they've come in in all sorts of ways. We've had people coming directly via our website, some going via the email, some going via Twitter. Matt, I tell you what, Matt, we are multi-format, aren't we? So, uh, what are they saying? I'll, I'll write. It, I'll, I'll read out the good ones. But uh, Chris Tetters from Kansas. Uh huh. Recently found our podcast and fell in love with it. Good on you, Chris. Oh, cheers, Chris. So, yes, and he spent four summers at the Cosmosphere and fell in love with all things space. I'd like to spend four summers there. Yeah, so as he rightly points out in this quite a long email here, power is defined as one newton per metre per second. Uh-huh. That is your watt. Matt, we could have done that Family Guide joke where if you'd have said it's just it's one watt, and I went... One watt? It's one what? <laughs> <laughs> it's one what? Oh dear! So he over. It's over. So he decided to pull out some rough heights and times of burn for the first stage. And according to SpaceX website, the first stage burns for 162 seconds. Although I think the Falcon 9 Block Five burnt slightly longer. If I'm if I'm watching my little uh, video. Uh, the video of it but then someone did say that the video might be misleading so that competitors couldn't uh, work out what was going on which seems a bit weird but anyway interesting yeah that, okay uh, so 162 seconds which is consistent with four launch demonstration above averaging those times mm-hmm. and distances and for convenience sake assuming the rock will travelled in a linear rather than arced path, which, yeah, I ended up doing when I was trying to work it out, found an average distance of the first stage burn to be 70 kilometres and an average burn time of 157 seconds, which means the Watts of the Falcon 9 first stage is 70,000 kilometres over... Actually, I think he means uh, 70,000 metres there. 70,000 metres divided by 157 seconds multiplied by the thrust, which is 7,920,000 newtons, equals 3.53 gigawatts. Now, that's a lot... God that, damn! That's a lot lower than the gigawatts that were that uh, Gerst was saying uh, in his tweet... Uh, and yeah, I'm true. pretty certain that there's more power coming out the back of a of a Block Five uh, Falcon than there is at the Soyuz FG, don't you think? Well, we're just going to have to measure it ourselves when we go to the launch, Matt. Yeah. So uh, if you plug in like the uh, it, uh, Chris actually does the maths on the Soyuz, and he gets to 1.6 gigawatts for the Soyuz, which sounds about right. That the, the Falcon will be double that of the Soyuz. 
Um, Correct. But there was, but there was others. There was others. Are uh, one of the one of the one of the greats of the po- podcast uh, listeners. One of our um, one of our patrons. He wrote in as well, and I'm just going to get his up. Uh, it's actually quite nice not following notes i feel like really free (laughs) (laughs) it's like actually i'll read out another email that we had from tom harnish it's an an apology i need to make to him he's from go on tom he's from san diego beautiful part of the world uh remember a a while back i was saying that china were building a a reusable booster and it and and i was saying that one of the reasons is because they didn't want to just take spacex's word for it because spacex were the only people to sort of have a uh a successful landing and reusing of a booster and Uh and and maybe that we should someone else should check it out he did actually point out to me of course uh that blue origin was first and that they landed a reusable booster eight times so far. So, mm. which, which of course is true. And I must admit, in my mind, I was thinking more really of it on a commercial basis. So far, Blue Origin haven't done that commercially, whereas SpaceX are, of course, doing it commercially and building towards, particularly in Block 5, a 24-hour turnaround and seeing how much they can reduce the price by. So, you are indeed right, Tom. But Matt, I'm assuming that you were just trolling. I mean, you knew. You I knew. knew what I, I was just seeing. Yeah, was. I just was just seeing if there was any. You were just seeing who was awake. <laughs> who was awake, and it turned out, and and Tom was awake. That those that there were some pretty clever people out in San Diego who were. <laughs> Thank goodness, someone is. Um, but let me. I've still. I still haven't found old um, uh, Mr. Shearns one. Oh no! Where on earth did that come in? Oh, this is a nightmare. <laughs> it must, must be somewhere surely ah there it is i found it i found it so uh mark did a very similar equation actually to our first listener uh to chris uh and uh he did he did one like that and came up with a similar number he also did it um using um potential energy and kinetic energy uh, so he worked out the kinetic and potential energies of the booster at a certain height and plugged those numbers in, which I thought was which I thought was really cool. Uh, and he he so and he came up with similar sort of figures. Um, the, the one thing that I I, I mean to, I've been meaning to do and haven't got round to, and, I, and and no one actually came in with this one. And I think this is this may be where where Gerst gets his figures from. Is the Here we go. is the energy density of the fuel and how much fuel it's burning, and therefore the input power, rather than the output power of the rocket. So maybe that's it. Maybe that's what he's well, referring I to. I could have told... Why didn't you both call me? Oh, I well, no, could have told you that that's the case. Weren't you, didn't you listen to the last podcast? Oh, for... F- you, should have, you should have written in your numpty. Oh. I, might just, I might just start tweeting in. To, to my own podcast <laughs> oh, oh dear, dear 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 well listeners uh, we've got some smart listeners haven't we matt yes we certainly have there was there was a there, like there was a few others as well but they, they all came up with very similar uh techniques but i thought mark's was worthy of reading out and chris's because mark's had, mark had that potential energy kinetic energy thing going which was great was great another a different formula matt, if you're if you're listening and you're a new listener, mm-hmm. how can you get in touch? You can go to www.interplanetary.org.uk and you can go. <laughs> you can actually leave messages on that website, and that goes to uh, our website. and uh, And you can go. You can just put info at interplanetary.org.uk, or you can send anything. 
it's at interplanetary.org.uk, I believe, and it'll come to me. Well, one of our favourite things is getting responses, comments, questions from our listeners. Isn't it the best thing, Matt? When you, I mean, Matt is always sending me screen grabs of people getting in touch with their thoughts, big time questions, uh, <laughs> correcting us when we're often Absolutely. wrong. Absolutely, um, and I love it. So carry on. Anyway, Jamie, the next time I went to the day into the British Interplanetary Society, guess what I was doing? What did you do? I saw uh, Alicia, who was doing her Mars Nation. Oh, thing. she's so cool. So, yeah, we, I did another Mars Nation event, which was great. It, this time it was about human problems when you get to Mars and how to solve them. So we all sat sat in little groups solving uh, different problems. I love that. And we had a, uh, one of the people, one of the scientists called Mo. He was, a, he was actually no, he was a systems engineer is what he is. And uh-huh. he, he went to one of those Mars analogs out in the Utah desert. Oh, yeah. And, yes. uh, and stayed, there for, stayed there for a few weeks doing it i must admit when he was talking about it it's like they don't really take it that seriously Mm. and then so so what my question to him was when are they actually going to do a when are they going to do like a mars analog where they all have to get in a sea container for six months uh then (laughs) then literally land on a planet like feeling really really ill get really down to some hard work stay there uh out of contact pretty much for say eight months and then get back in the same sea container and stay in that for six months and see how psychologically kind of damaged they see, are when they get out the other that, end. <laughs> that would be the experiment wouldn't it yeah you've, you've got to make it and when i asked him that he said no i think we should just send people to mars and see what happens i'm thinking mm. oh man but, this yeah. goes back this goes back to that original point you were making about about we're just tadpoles at the moment exactly. and we and we need to turn into frogs to go into space we do need to turn into frogs and i matt i'm willing to do that test if anyone wants to pay me mm-hmm. i'll do it awesome just need to go to my boss and explain what i'm doing he'll be fine <laughs> we should do we should definitely do a mars analog test so ourselves. Should. i've got some great ideas for our 100th podcast as well oh it's ever looming um yeah i might take all my clothes off Oh, yes, that'd be so brilliant. And no one will know, but, but just me and you, Matt. No, because it's going to be live. It's definitely going to be a live YouTube broadcast. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Wait, can so, I just... <laughs> in, a, in, a, in, a room, in, a, in a room full of people. So maybe you, maybe you want to reassess whether you want to do that. So Yeah. Oof. Oof. I'll have a think. I'll have a think. Um, and the next time I went to the British Interplanetary Society yeah. uh, was to interview Chris Riley. Here we go, Chris Riley. Now I'm I'm gutted that I missed this one. I was struck down with a fever and a horrible sore throat that I'm still getting rid of. But guys, I'm a professional. That's why we're doing this. Nice. Um, and but, but Matt, how was it? It was brilliant. Colin f- filled in for you for a couple of questions and then he Good had man. to go and let the woman from Ezrin do her talk. Uh-huh. He was a lovely, lovely guy. What an absolute lovely guy. And I'm going to be playing that interview in a, in a, a couple of weeks because I've got my David Baker interview next week, of course. It's, it's, it's that time of the month. Beautiful. And we're going to be we're going to be speaking about uh, all things Mars next week. So I uh, absolutely love it. Great work. So, yeah, this is going to be super cool. Uh, that's a great interview with Chris Riley. If you don't know who Chris Riley is, uh, he made In the Shadow of the Moon, he made the Neil Armstrong uh, biop that, that, that was on the um, 
on the telly quite recently and just after at Christmas time, just after Neil Armstrong died. It's an absolutely beautiful documentary about Neil Armstrong. Mm. And he gave a little talk at the BIS. And one of the things that I just could not believe, there are there's a family living in Neil Armstrong's house that he grew up in, right? And they right. went round to the house and said, oh, can we have a look round? And they said, well, you know, why do you, why do you want to have a look round? And they sort of said, yeah, yeah, because Neil Armstrong used to live here. And they went, oh, that cheating drug cheat. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, you know, that cyclist. <laughs> and they went, Lance Armstrong. <laughs> so the family living in Neil Armstrong's house where he grew up didn't know who Neil Armstrong was. They'd oh, never heard... They'd sick. never heard of him. And so there was this like 13-year-old boy who was living in Neil Armstrong's bedroom where he threw his paper aeroplanes out the window and he'd never heard of him or didn't oh. know the significance of the house. Oh, my God. Please tell me that that changed. No, they didn't give a, they didn't give a monkeys and, no, and they couldn't really work out what, what the big deal was. It was so bizarre. <laughs> oh, God. I'm not going to say what I'm thinking. But yeah, but Chris was sort of saying that that was sort of quite common in America that 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 have they don't have the same like literally Neil Armstrong is almost kind of see Matt. For, this forgotten. is why this is why it's so important to spread the message that these icons and heroes are not forgotten. You know? Yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean, so, so I mean, I always say that Neil Armstrong is going to be. He's, he's never going to be forgotten in like a, a thousand years' time. He might actually yeah. be the only person we remember from the 20th century. Um, and because cause he's, he's the first person to do something, he can, ne- can never be taken away. Do you think I'll be remembered, Matt? Well, I think that we will live on in, in, in some of our great works. <laughs> we, ha- we haven't done them yet, but, <laughs> but when we covered, do, we, you, you've got everyone surely must feel it. They must feel how the podcast is growing. In, oh, I mean, this and is, that one day, from and one day, and one day it might be good. It might actually will, be good. We will turn into frogs soon. <laughs> it's Don't getting worry. There. Come on, it's getting yeah. there. Yes. I'm going to quickly tell you what, what happened this week. On, we, we had we had that Antares launch. We we mentioned that earlier on. We've had a Falcon yeah. Nine launch of an Iridium yeah. Next satellite with the German Grace FO satellite. Uh-huh. Uh, and next week we've got another Falcon Nine uh, taking up SES twelve. Actually, that Falcon Nine uh, that that flew the Grace from the Iridium Next was the same booster that flew the Zuma mysterious Zuma payload up. Ooh la la! So we just play my interview. Oh, let's do it. I'll, t- I'll talk to you about M-Drive and the Mac effect another time. Écoutez to the oh, interview. So uh, I'm here with Robin Brand at the Arthur C. Clarke House, the headquarters of the British Interplanetary Society, and you've just given a talk about the feasibility of uh, a native launch here in the UK. Can you tell us a little bit about that study? Yes, indeed. The study is one of the six technical projects being run by the British Interplanetary Society. We started two years ago. We finished this March. We've issued a final report, which is available in draft and full form, so anybody who's interested. And the actual title of the study was Investor-Funded Access to Space from the UK. And we consider it unique because... Uh, Unlike commercial studies, it's open-sourced in effect, it's technology unbiased, Um, the various uh, vehicles we're concerned and looked at have been judged on their 
business merits rather than their purely technical merits and the output from the report has been couched in investor understandable terms rather than engineering terms so unlike many similar reports which have come, come about it's not just technical about two-thirds of the report is concerned with investment and business and will the business case be closed and on the feasibility of launching from various places in the UK. Yeah, I noticed that you used several uh, quite innovative ways of, of working out what your market would be. Could you tell us a little bit about what the small satellite market would be? That's right, yes. We've looked at um, various international uh, market surveys of what the current market is and then one of the important things for a project which may mature in several years time uh, from a business point of view you have to make a judgment on what the growth of the market is going to be what the competition is going to be let us say three or four years down the line and the technique we used is we believe a first for the space industry it's something called ABM which is agent-based modeling which tries instead of just extrapolating on past performance because future performance is no uh, sorry past performance is no guarantee of future performance we try to understand the drivers that drive the customers and the customers are called agents and this is the sort of thing that's used for simulating how crowds would perform in a theatre should it catch fire and it's a, a proper mathematical technique used in other industries we brought it into the study that we've used to, to try and get a real handle on how this works. Yeah, it's really interesting because I, I noticed there was a, a little bit of criticism of other uh, recent um, small satellite launch companies. Um, I'll, I'll keep them nameless at the moment, but uh, it's because it, it seemed from your analysis that they're what they were saying about launches, for example, launching once a week with a bunch of nanosats was, seemed unrealistic in terms of the uh, global yeah, launch Yes, market. indeed. Um, it's one of these compromises. It's a sort of engineering sweet point in there somewhere, if you like. Um, on the one hand, you want to increase the size of your vehicle and your payload because you then get economies of scale and if you can ride share on a big vehicle it can be very much cheaper because somebody's paying for the flight in the first place. Um, on the other hand, if you're doing it on your own, you've got to be aware that if you go for too many launches in a year and those launches are you know, trying to launch too many satellites, you find yourself gobbling up too much of a proportion of the of the global space market. In our particular example, we've said even if you launch only six times a year, say once a month during the summer, even then you'll be launching 60 satellites and that might be 20% of the global market. So if you're not launching once every month, you're launching once every week, you can see that the figures don't really stack up and you assume that there's no competition out there, you've got all the world's market, etc, etc. Hmm. So you have to be fairly careful in doing this and not get carried away with economies of scale merely to make your business case work. Yeah, you, you made a couple of assumptions for uh, to, to keep the scope of your analysis uh, quite tight. One of them was uh, it seemed that you concentrated on the, uh, uh, Scotland as a, as a launch place. Was, that, was there any real reason why you chose Scotland? Did it seem the most feasible or was it what, the one that was easiest to concentrate on? Um, we, well, at the beginning of the study we looked at all sorts of places, not just in the UK, we looked at Norway, we looked in the South Atlantic, Ascension Island is a very nice place to launch from, from a geographical point of view. It's got no infrastructure at all. 
and we gradually got back to the UK and while the study was going on the situation in the UK changed a lot. The UK government declared that the UK, it was their intention for the UK to become a launching state. The whole environment changed, they brought in all the, um, the infrastructure and the regulations for licensing and being put into place and that combined with various other geographical difficulties has made us sort of concentrate on the UK. Yeah, and one of the other uh, sort of things that I noticed was that you you have a reference vehicle, and that reference vehicle is developed locally and, and made by the UK. With, so is there any scope for it to to not be that, or, or, or was well, any yes, reason there for is. that? There's, you have to make various value judgments on for your business case. Are you going to rely on you know foreign imports? During the talk here, for instance, somebody said it's a lot cheaper to buy in engines from Russia and things like that. But then you'd have a business case entirely dependent on the Russians' goodwill. Do you want to go down that path, or do you want to uh, work on the basis of? leveraging or leveraging whatever the term is uh, the heritage that the UK has got because the sort of engines we're talking about for this vehicle are half the size of some of the engines that were developed in the 60s in the UK vehicles like Black Arrow had twice the uh, thrust of what we're proposing here mm. and they're about twice the size of what was done for um, Black Knight which was launched dozens of times from Wilmer in South Australia so we're not talking about anything particularly magically new. Hmm. Which, you know, there is a heritage there in the UK, and maybe we can we can take that and, and build on it. Right. Okay. So yeah. So that yeah, that's part of, inbuilt into the study. Yeah. And and what and what was the conclusion of the study? The conclusion was that uh, orbital access from the UK could be investor funded within the constraints that we explained tonight. Yeah. So. Um, it, there was another term that came up was IRR, and it came to 10%. And there was obviously a few grumblings in the in the in the audience that 10% might not be a robust enough figure. What, what, how do you how do you, how do you, how do you see that? Okay, then. So what we're doing here, which we believe is unique as far as studies like this are concerned, is that we are introducing a quantitative measure on what an investor will get back. Um, should, should they put money into a scheme like this? And this, if you like, is a stake in the ground. We've used 10% as a realistic figure. Um, that's plus 10%, which obviously is a positive return. Some of the scenarios that we've looked at, you might end up with minus 20% return. That means your business case isn't going to be valid at all. You've just yeah. abandoned it. So you could argue, yes, it should be 20%, not 10%, but you'd have to build on that existing case. It's, it's a measure. You know, it's a stake yeah. in the ground that you can use to, to calibrate your model. If somebody comes up with something else, another solution, how does it compare with this? Does it give you a better return or not? It gives you a number to measure by. It's not just opinion. Yeah, so this, this is, this is you've uh, mentioned that this was part one of a, uh, what's next? Well, we finished the course of the original study, which is a two-year study. We're now calling that phase one, because those involved want to move on to a 12-month phase two. And in two or three weeks' time, we're going to have the initial phase two meeting, where we'll define what we're going to look at. And some of the factors that we identified, we should look at these in greater detail. 
and um, possibly put together a business plan, explore those things, explore the various questions which have been raised this evening in more depth and write background papers and so on. Brilliant. Thank you very much for talking to me, but even though your voice is quite yeah, sore, we've got quite a lot of noise going on. My apologies for being croaky. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thank you very much. Well, so great. Awesome stuff. So it looks like it looks like Britain is going to collaborate with Australia. About bloody time, mate. On building their, their own version of the European global uh, navigation system. And apparently, uh, I was talking to Alistair, who got back from some very important meeting with a bunch of... Um, space people and government, uh-huh. and it and it really is, yeah. They're kind of basically saying the the, the British are saying to the Europeans, look, we we're the only people with the technology to actually build it. Without us, you can't actually build your own uh, uh, GPS system. So we'll, we'll just we'll just build our own. So it doesn't really matter. I bye, think see you soon. Yeah, bye. That's great. See you later. Yeah. Bye. So I mean, this is all brinksmanship as, as far as mm. I'm concerned. It can't it can't get to the point where they go, no, you can't use our satellite. Yeah. Right. It's ridiculous. Agreed. Silly billies. Get it together, Europe and Britain. Stop being nasty yeah, to each other. Come on. On this day, in Friday the 25th of May, it's my dad's birthday. Ah. Happy birthday, Richard Russell. So, yeah, last week, my brothers. This week's my dad's. Happy birthday, Dad. You are a legend. My dad saw V2 rockets flying over Kent on their way to, to London. How cool is that? It's just insane. And more well, importantly, I don't, know, Matt, I don't think it was cool at the time. More importantly, yes. <laughs> he helped give life to you. It's Georgi Greco, or Georgi Mikhailovich Greco, a Soviet cosmonaut and Russian engineer. Here we go. Who flew on Soyuz 17, Soyuz 26, and Soyuz T-14. It's his birthday also, born Blimey. in 1931. Well, happy birthday to all of you. Yeah. Oh, by the way, oh. Chris, Chris Riley, you know we celebrated Richard Feynman's birthday yeah. last week. Uh, Chris uh, Chris Riley actually directed that fantastic Mr. Feynman film as well when he interviewed ah. all his family. So he's done loads. You're even more of a fan. I, I didn't realise just how many of his programmes I've seen. Look it up, Chris Riley. Oh, we need it's to unbelievable. Check. Please, everyone, and check he's a lovely it out. guy. Brilliant stuff. We did a little bit of a rambling chat this week. Yeah. about stuff. But I hope you enjoyed it. We're sorry we didn't have time to do some proper notes, but we were out doing field trips at the BIS and stuff like that. There we go. I was working hard and I was poorly. But ah. hey, one thing that I'm not poorly with, Matt, that's mm-hmm. the love for space. For all you space podcasts out there, don't get too obsessed with space. Enjoy it and then maybe, you know, do something else as well for a bit and then come back to space and, and realise how ace it is. What that's do you think? beautiful. It's really beautiful, Matt. <laughs> it didn't quite work as well as I thought it was going to. I loved it. <laughs> do you know what, Jamie? Make it why quick. Should, I've got, I've got, I've got, I've, no, I've got, a, I've got a space joke to finish on. Okay, go. Why would Brian May have made a really good astronaut? Go on. Because he can always perform under pressure. God. Are we still recording? Because that was. And I love Brian May. Because he can always perform under pressure. Right. Let's let's leave him. Yeah. I'm going to press stop. 